Chapter 12 of Carpenter's World Travels Alaska, Our Northern Wonderland by Frank Carpenter. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Betty B. Chapter 12 Skagway, Gateway to the Klondike. In the days of the Klondike Gold Rush, Skagway, here at the head of the Lynn Canal, was one of the most talked of towns in the world. It was the chief gate to the rich new gold fields and miners came by the thousands to tramp their way over the passes to the headwaters of the Yukon, and thence float down to Dawson. A little later it became the terminus of the White Pass Railway, which was built when the gold fever was at its height, and runs from here to Whitehorse, the head of the navigation of the Yukon, as if by magic it sprang from a village of tents to a bustling city of wood and stone of 15,000 population, most of these people were transients moving back and forth from the gold mines. Then the mines began to play out, and the blood of Skagway grew weak. The cream had been skimmed from the Klondike, and the bottle was empty. The miners grew fewer and fewer, and the city dwindled and pined, until it now has all told only five or six hundred. The saloons and dance halls have all disappeared. The hotels and rooming shacks have rotted away, and many of the better-class houses are vacant. The town has changed from a booming, wide-open community of gamblers, fortune-hunters, and miners to a staid little settlement living on the travelers who pass through on their way to Yukon Territory and the interior of Alaska, and on the tourists who come north by the thousands every season to view the glaciers and other scenic wonders. The usual tour of Alaska is confined to the islands of the southeastern part and ends at Skagway. Many travelers make the excursion by rail to the top of the White Pass and return during the stay of their steamer in port. So far, not a great many have gone on into Canadian territory to Dawson, while those who make the long trip down the Yukon and across Norton Sound to Nome, as I have set out to do, are fewer still. Many of the tourists who mean to go no farther than Skagway, do not return with the steamer that brought them, but stay on for several days or even weeks. The place is fast becoming a summer resort. It has a mild climate with much less rain than other parts of the Panhandle. In addition, Skagway offers no end of excursions on horseback, on foot, or by motorboat. This tourist travel will increase as soon as our people awake to the wonders of Alaska and know they can be warm enough comfortably housed, and well-fed while they enjoy them. I can well see how Skagway got its title of the Flower City of Alaska. Flowers are everywhere. One of the gardens I visited was that of Mr. F.J. Weber, who is in charge of the shops of the White Pass Railway. He has more than 40 varieties of dahlias of every color and tint. Some are snow white, some blood red, others of a delicate salmon. He has even blue dahlias of the deep hue of the mountains far off in the distance. And such dahlias, the stems of some of the plants reached to a height of nine feet, and their blossoms were as big around as dinner plates. I took my two-foot rule and found that this was so by actual measure. One gorgeous purple blossom was nine inches across. Another, the geisha dahlia, with blossoms of old gold and fiery red, measured more than 10 inches from side to side. Indeed, the size of the flowers was so great that I had myself photographed standing at the roots of one of the plants to make the camera testify to the truth of my story. 
the stem reached so high above me that i could just touch the blossom and as i looked up the flower seemed as big as a pie pan nevertheless it grew from a bulb planted in the open just about two months ago most of mr weber's dahlias are growing not in hothouses but in beds in a lawn and their only protection is a windshield a wire fence walled with glass which faces the channel to keep off the cold blasts from the sea and the mountains among the other flowers i saw in this garden were marigolds five inches wide and red geraniums equally large there were also japanese gold-banded lilies with flowers as long as your hand i counted nineteen such lilies on a single plant just now great beds of white clover grow on the sides of the streets and the hills are covered with bushes and wild flowers many of the residents have garden patches where they grow all the vegetables used by the town i saw one patch of raspberries this morning which had bushes as high as my head and berries as thick as my thumb i saw rhubarb with leaves as big as two pages of a newspaper and stems that reach to my shoulders i am staying at the pullen house a place which it is said has entertained more distinguished guests than any other hotel in alaska it is run by mrs harriet pullen who came to skagway in the days of the gold fever landing on the beach with four children and seven dollars now she has this modern hotel of twenty rooms with many baths and several acres of grounds around the main building are bungalows which may be rented by families or parties of friends the lawn is planted with trees and flowers in the middle of the mountain stream flowing through it is a little island and there are rustic bridges here and there giving a pleasing japanese effect this morning when i came down to breakfast i found beside my plate a blue enameled pan full of rich milk from which i skimmed the cream for my coffee and cereal this is one of the special features of the pullen house mrs pullen gets her fruit vegetables and dairy products from her three hundred and twenty acre farm which covers the site of the old town of daia she tells me she has forty acres in oats which she is raising for grain hay and that she has already put her rye hay crop in the barn the barn by the way is one of the deserted houses built during the mining boom when daia had something like ten thousand people other of the houses have been torn away to make room for the crops and practically nothing of the once thriving mining center is now to be seen when gold was first discovered in the klondike there were two roads or trails from the head of the lynn canal over the mountains one started here at skagway and climbed up through the white pass to lake bennett then went on down the yukon to dawson the other began at daia four miles away and went over the chilkoot pass to the yukon at first daia had the lead over skagway it built an aerial tramway running on a cable that carried freight up the pass although the passengers had to walk or as they say here mush it up the sheer thirty five hundred feet of chilkoot pass as the cars rose into the air upheld by the wire rope they swung this way and that and now and then some of the freight was spilled out once a car carried ninety-four hogs the motion made them dizzy and seasick and half of them jumped out and were crushed on the rocks far below the building of the white pass railway sounded the death knell of daia the inhabitants rushed to skagway where the new road began many of them left their houses without trying to sell them and some abandoned their furniture 
one family departed leaving a table half set for dinner all were crazy to get to the gold mines or to share in the prosperity which it was thought skagway would have after a short while all had left with the exception of a man named emile clatt who took up a homestead on the site of the abandoned city ploughed the streets and laid out his fields among the town lots he farmed there for years and became generally known as the mayor of daia although his only constituents were cattle and sheep i do not think he made any money at all events he finally sold the property which now belongs as i have said to mrs pullen it is interesting to hear the skagwayans tell of the days when their town was at the height of its drunken prosperity it was to use a slang phrase wide open having sixty-one saloons each with its dance hall adjoining there were neither courts nor police at that time there was no law in alaska under which a municipal government could be organized and the only representative of uncle sam was a deputy marshal he was a rough character and was supposed to be in league with the criminal element at least he did nothing to control it and bands of thugs held up the chichaco and even robbed the old miners as they came from the klondike a little later the criminal element was combined by one randolph jefferson smith who has a traditional fame here something like that of slade of mark twain's roughing it smith got the nickname of soapy in colorado because he peddled soap which to the purchaser seemed to be wrapped in ten and twenty dollar bills the game is a swindle well known throughout the west arriving in skagway about the time the united states declared war on spain soapy got together four hundred of the vicious element of the place and offered them to president mckinley as a band of rough riders ready to fight the spaniards the president who had been posted as to their character declined their services soapy then armed and drilled them and used them to prey upon the community they robbed strangers singly and in crowds they committed a number of murders and it was almost sure death to oppose them the people were intimidated and there began a reign of terror that lasted for months the gang had all sorts of ways of fleecing the miners who passed through on their way to the klondike as well as getting the gold of those who came back the advance agents of soapy's gang would go to seattle and come back with the crowd on the steamer the passengers were mostly gold seekers each of whom had an outfit that had cost about five hundred dollars besides enough money to get him to dawson some had more some less soapy's agents who pretended to be miners would organize companies with a view to getting cheap freight and would take from each member of the company an order to the ship to release his goods to the packers or men who carried the goods over the trail upon landing the men would run the miners into soapy's gambling saloon where within an hour they were sure to lose all their money at cards they then had not enough to pay their freight bills and as a result their outfits would fall into the hands of the gang captain bauman of the s s humboldt told me that it would take only about forty or fifty minutes after the ship came to anchor for the prospectors to land and lose all their money and come back weeping and begging for a steerage passage home as time went on the robbers grew bolder and matters became worse and worse miners coming out from dawson had their bags of gold stolen from them and it finally became unsafe for any stranger in skagway stories of the outrages went to the outside and hurt the town 
The climax was capped by the robbing of a young miner named Stewart, who had just come from Dawson with a poke containing $2,700 in gold dust. The man made a fuss, and prominent businessmen went to Soapy and asked him to give back the money. When he refused, a vigilance committee was formed. Soapy threatened to shoot upon sight any man that dared to attack him, and when four attempted to make an arrest, he put his cocked rifle against the stomach of their leader, Frank Reed. Reed grabbed the gun and drew his revolver, but Smith pulled the trigger and the ball passed through Reed's body. At the same time, Reed fired two or three shots in rapid succession, and one of his bullets pierced Soapy Smith's heart, while another wounded him in the leg. Before falling, Smith fired a second shot, striking Reed in the leg. Then both men fell, Soapy Smith stone dead, and Frank Reed mortally wounded. News of Smith's death sent his gang scurrying for the hills like jackrabbits. In their panic, not one of his men thought of him, and his body lay on the spot where it had fallen until two o'clock in the morning, when some women took it away. I asked Captain Bauman, who knew Soapy Smith, what became of his money. The captain replied, he spent it as fast as it came, and when he was killed he had nothing to speak of except about six hundred dollars of the gold dust he had taken from Stewart. This was found in a poke in his trunk. Soapy gave a good deal to the men who were with him. In fact, he was one of the most open-handed men that ever came to Alaska. He paid the expenses of many who went broke and helped them out of the country. If a man died, Soapy was always ready to spend several hundred dollars on groceries for his widow and children. He was free also in his gifts of money, while his orders for provisions to be sent to the poor were so generous that his trade was worth hundreds of dollars a week to several of the Skagway stores. This was one reason why some of the citizens said nothing against him. A few days before his death, he was actually marshal of the 4th of July. Even preachers sometimes ask his aid. They tell a story here of a young Chichaco sky pilot who once got Soapy to help him get contributions for some church work. Smith turned in with a will on the understanding that the minister should handle all the cash. When the sum seemed satisfactory to the outlaw, he sent one of his gang to steal it from the confiding divine. Another reason why his career was not interrupted sooner was the fact that Soapy's enemies had a strange way of disappearing and being never more heard from. The Skagway of today is an orderly community with good schools, waterworks and sewers, electric lights and telephones, a daily newspaper, and several churches. The chief business of the town seems to be the selling of curios to the tourists. There are half a dozen stores that sell jewelry, carvings, moccasins, and baskets. The jewelry is made by the Indians who pound it out of silver dollars. The carvings are of walrus tusks cut by the Eskimos, and the moccasins and baskets are manufactured by the natives about Skagway and in other parts of Alaska. None of these things is cheap. The best baskets, little ones that will not hold more than a quart, bring from fifty to one hundred dollars, while cigarette cases of the same character sell for fifteen dollars apiece. No basket of fine workmanship can be bought for less than eight or ten dollars. The best are made under water. They are of straw woven finer than the finest Panama hat, and so delicate and intricate that it takes several months to make a basket as big as the head of a baby. The best ones come from the Aleutian Islands. 
They are woven by the older of the Indian women, for the art is dying out and will probably pass away with this generation. Most of the carvings come from the Nome Eskimos and the Indian settlements about the mouth of the Yukon, although some very good carvings are done by the Indians about Skagway and Sitka. The Indians make their own carving tools, grinding them out of old razor blades. In working, they pull the instrument toward them, digging out the ivory after the style of the Japanese. This is just opposite to the way our carvers work. The commercial photographer also reaps a rich harvest in Alaska with its wonderful scenery and its picturesque natives. I know of one photograph that has netted its owner $500, and there are many steady sellers which bring in a good income every season. End of chapter 12